Hello, and welcome to episode four of the Sitcom Club. As ever, joining myself, Mooncat, are Bogdan Strovia. Good evening. DCT. Hello. And your old pal, Ocho. Episode four, but official podcast two. Yeah, now you see that this is going to cause confusion later on because this is the fourth time that we've done this. This is officially, in terms of the podcast, the second one. And of course, we've talked many, many times elsewhere uh, about all manner of different sitcoms, both real and not so real. But uh, yeah, so this this could cause confusion. But let's just let's just keep it simple. It's podcast number two. Podcast number two. There we go. And what are we discussing? I'm going to, I'm going to give a, a Jaffa cake to the first person who shouts out the name of the program that we were discussing this evening. Uh, Pompeii. Uh, thank you, Boggs. I should apologise for saying this evening, of course, you could be listening to this in Australia, where it could be any old time of day or night. So anyway, yes, indeed. A couple of bits of housekeeping to attend to, first of all, before we get down to our puppy. Thank you very much, indeed, for all the feedback that we've had for the show so far. For everybody who's been listening to our first two shows, and of course, then everybody listening to this podcast. And we've had a lot of nice little bits of feedback. One bit of feedback in particular will be of interest to your cell phone show. And that's from a Cab4 member, Crabwalk, who says, Splendid stuff. Spats after up Pompeii, please. This, I know, this is a controversial point because we did discuss off-air the eligibility of the aforementioned Spats uh, in our sitcom list. We did. We decided that Spats was a sitcom, Teabag is a comedy drama, and Grandad, Charlie Quick, with Clive Dunn, is an erotic thriller and therefore ineligible for Sitcom Club. Yeah. Um, they did have to sort of turn down the eroticism, given that it was being broadcast in the Watch with Muller slot. None of it appeared on camera, or was in the scripts, or ever discussed, but there was that simmering tension whenever you watch an episode. There was something that I found rather creepy about Grandad. I mean, I don't mean Clive Dunn himself, or, or even the character. One thing that I, I didn't like about that was the audience, because unusually... It was an audience primarily of kids. And I do remember, even at the time, even even as a kid watching the show, that it just felt different. Whereas with ordinary audience laughter, it feels sort of warm and welcoming. There's something about this audience full of kids that's got a sort of a slightly harsh edge to the laughter. It's like, ah! It's like it's sort of each time there's like a, a pratfall or a custard pie, whatever it may be, it's quite sort of harsh, uh, the, the response that it gets in comparison to... I don't know, some lousy BBC One half past eight on a Friday night, the family sitcom. It's like a bunch of Boy Scouts at a guillotining during the Reign of Terror. You you phrased that far better than I ever could. Someone did say that it was like you were saying there, Archo, Boy Scout laughter and all like that. That's what puts Grandad out there as being slightly... I mean, when you look, say, at Grandad compared to something like Rentigo's, Right, which hasn't got any laughter on it at all. It is cackling laughter at anything which is sort of, like you say, a pratfall or anything like that. Well, I've promised Crabwalk that I'm going to continue to lobby for Spats, and I think that the, the crucial element should be that Spats does have a canned laughter, legitimately canned laughter track. Mike and Angelo, for example, started without a canned laughter track and then gained one, whereas Teabag never had canned laughter at any point. So the fact that Spats has got a can laughter track means that that should be in the list, and so should the all-new Pink Panther show. And indeed with Spats. Of course, if we were going to do Spats, there comes the issue of the fact that the only episode that anyone may or may not have a copy of was from the old-school weekend uh, that 
they marvelously did uh, a short while back to celebrate uh, however many years of CITV. We will do our best. We will go to the four corners of the planet to acquire this for you. In all its NPSC loveliness. Well, for whoever's listening who is who is in a position to uh, get spats out officially on DVD, please do. <laughs> Network, please take note. And for anybody who's listening who wants to hear us talking about Up Pompeii, <laughs> tough luck, mate. Yeah. You came to the wrong podcast, baby. Actually, we've got we've got a nice segue now. We've got a nice segue into the main topic of discussion because Boggs, you just said about uh, NTSC loveliness. This is one of the striking features of what Pompeii. You'll know better than I would, chaps. Was this recorded at Television Centre itself? I presume it would have been. <laughs> oh, we're supposed to do research. <laughs> you said you had. Yeah, I did of tons of research. To be honest, a lot of my research is things not directly connected to what. Pompeii. Your your research was mainly on the typhoon adverts with the, the three degrees. I'm sure it was done at TV Centre. I can't imagine that it would not be done at Television Centre at all. I'm going to throw something else at Yocho in a second as well, which you you may know about, but it's slightly off topic. I might actually save it for later. I mean, on. I can tell you that the events of the Up Pompeii movie do take place after the death of Vespasian and during the reign of Titus. That's the kind of research I've done. Well, just to clarify here as well, if one considers the fact that if one is aware of where potentially the BBC's Comedy Playhouse series was recorded, it might lead on from there, I would suspect. Uh, the interesting thing, I just had a quick look at the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, and they mentioned that this and Are You Being Served weren't actually broadcast under the Comedy Playhouse banner. They were just during the Comedy Playhouse series, but they don't actually have the opening and closing Comedy Playhouse titles. I'm, I'm concerned that there's, there's too much emphasis being put on this uh, throwaway comment of mine about Television Centre because it was actually of no importance whatsoever. The only point I was going to make about that... Although, just to clarify, <laughs> there was a lot of importance to BBC Television Centre itself. Oh yes, yes. yes. I'm not, I'm not, not uh, in any way them playing television well, centre. Going, uh, going back to what Joe's point. Now you said that it didn't have a comedy playhouse titles. Uh, not according to the Radio Times Guide to Comedy. I'm sure they did because I remember they did re-show the pilot of Are You Being Served as part of Are You Being Served Night the other year, and it did have the comedy playhouse thing. At the beginning. Ah, well, the RT guide has either let us down or history has been rewritten behind our backs. It is It is possible that that's been included in the restored version under the misapprehension that it would have gone out like that. So, who knows, but somebody will, somebody will know for sure. But anyway, the, the point I was going to make about Up Pompeii, regardless of whether it was recorded at the TV centre, which probably was, or TV theatre, wherever it may have been, was that it was made by the BBC in the, the UK. And yet, when you look at it, you think... God Almighty, what is this ropey third-generation VHS-quality copy that's doing on my television? I remember the first time I ever saw it, Pompeii was in a repeat one, I think it was around about 1991 on BBC Two, and I remember being struck by just how awful the picture quality was. It has got that strange sheen, like you say, that NTSC sheen, which everyone knows, yeah, you can convert things now, but obviously back then... Was it actually shown on BBC One like that? Well, you this know, this is this is the thing. It was it wasn't shown like that originally. It was shown in its its normal color six two five 
uh, line glory. However, in keeping with many series of uh, that particular time, especially late 69, 1970, we talked about Steto and Sun episodes from that period as well, the shows were wiped after transmission. And a number of episodes were then rediscovered later on, which were exports that had been sent to uh, CBC in Canada. And so many of the episodes that we've since seen repeated are PAL to NTSC, back to PAL conversions. Thankfully, there has been some restoration work done recently, uh, recently as in sort of last five or six years or so, to a number of those episodes, and they're looking a lot better than they were. But the particular episode that we were reviewing was uh, Series 1, Episode 1, Vestal Virgins, and to the best of my knowledge, I think that's still sort of coming out in its grotty quality. So that, it gives it almost a sort of look all of its own, and it does, yeah, to the the, uh, the naked eye, looks very much like a American series. Of course, um, Frankie Howard did do a series in Canada in the mid-1970s just called The Frankie Howard Show in which uh, he was an expat living with a Canadian family. So it has that sort of uh, look to it. But um, let me go around the grounds uh, here. First of all, we'll start off with yourself, DCT. What were your thoughts then on Series 1, Episode 1 of of Pompeii? I certainly need to uh, investigate further into it. The reason, of course, that we picked Episode 1 was because none of us were huge fans of it initially, as it were. What, what I like about it, I do, I'm always, I'm, I'm always quite fond of breaking the fourth wall. Anyway, quite like that. I, um, I like the prologue element and the interruptions and kind of um, making it empathetic, making it accessible experience with Frankie Howard kind of warmly talking to the audience and and letting them in on the jokes and it's sort of you know wait for it. I'd like to think that um, were I to watch the entire series that there might be a few Latin jokes in there. I might be being optimistic. It's a romping bit of sauce. Yes, I think that's fair enough. And um, given the the pedigree of the writer, Talbot Rothwell, most famous, of course, for so many of the carry-on films, that's his stock in trade. And this was picking up on Frankie Howard's success in the theatre production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum where he was doing the, the sides to the the audience and so on. So yes, it is fair to say that it's a vehicle for Frankie Howard. This series wouldn't have been made for anyone else. It's not something that could have been recast at some point in the future. It's for himself to be able to have that contact with you, the viewer, uh, and have a bit of elbow room with the other actors and have a fairly loose plot. Yeah, it's got the farcical element. I mean, in, in this particular episode, Vestal Virgins and and they're like it, you know, it's I mean from the get-go. Certain aspects you've got in the midst of all this, you've you've got mistaken identity, you've got uh, trying to rectify a problem by inadvertently making the problem worse, and so forth. You know, we we talked about certain sitcom traits, and I'd say if I was adding to the list uh, from this particular episode, I'd say it'd be more about plot points than overall, because if you're looking at the story rather than the overall plot and so forth. I mean, the scenario itself is rather exceptional, especially for its time as well. It's a situation where you've got a setting which can't be argued with, really. It's so far back that you can really have a lot of fun with it, for the most part. It's ancient history, so you can really play around you know, with what is known and what isn't known. And, and then with Frankie Howard, you throw in this whole context. I mean, I think in the second episode I watched, there's several references to telephones and the like and so forth. And it's, as the series goes along, it appears to get sillier and bawdier and more referential to modern times and so forth. And um, and, and that's the thing. It's very aware of itself. It's very um, aware of what it is. And it's and for that, it's a good thing. You know, it's, it's silly fun. 
Um, Ocho, let me just pick up on DCT's point there about having fun with historical fact and fiction, because you had some notes there about the actual setting as opposed to the real dates and real people involved. Just something I've noticed in, in things like this and things like Asterix comics is this idea of Roman times as a very fixed period. And of course, you're talking about centuries and centuries. The episode we watched, episode one, series one, and the movie, which I watched, I think, Mooncat, did you watch it as well? I did, yes. Yeah. They take a place 158 years apart. <laughs> and even then, you've got um, Nero being emperor 11 years after he died. So it's it's just interesting. It's a little bit like um, westerns, things like that. There's this kind of generic version of history that, as soon as you as soon as you know anything about it, makes makes no sense in a way. Yeah, and as I said to yourself uh, off air before, most of my historical knowledge comes. Well, actually, most of my historical knowledge comes from. Uh, they offer himself Talbot Rothwell, mainly from the Carry On films. So but I just want to pick up one thing about saying that you know this is full of all sitcom staples. A lot of the uh, the tropes in Up Pompeii. I mean, Up Pompeii is a television version of a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum is based on plays, plays like Pseudolus and Miles Loriosus, written by Plautus. These are actually the tropes of Roman comedy, which itself was taken from the new Greek theatre. So the tropes we're seeing uh, in Up Pompeii are actually the tropes from the time it's set. We see in the pilot and in uh, the first episode, and I think I'm assuming it continues for the rest of the series, the interruptions by Plautus or Plautus. Lurcio is Pseudolus with serial numbers filed off, and Pseudolus was created by Plautus. I see. I think the interruptions from really Russian, I think they are throughout series one. I don't think they appear in series two. It It, it is going to sort of take liberties to an extent. We spoke before about the fact that the action in this particular episode began in uh, 72 BC and within five minutes it suddenly switched to 79 BC. So it doesn't worry too much about uh, uh, historical continuity. As with anything else, it uh, sets its own rules. The fact that uh, Frankie Howard can speak to ourselves directly without the other characters hearing, the fact that he can completely break the fourth wall and actually suggest that other actors have forgotten their lines or taken too long of their lines and so on, that's the laws of its own little universe. And it also has a nice little plot device in the fact that you can have the interruptions from the gods as well, which is not something you can just throw into to any old sitcom, no matter where uh, it's been set. But again, uh, this is uh, this is Roman theatre, the chorus who can address the audience, the god out of the machine. Bogenstrovia, let me go over to yourself. What were your thoughts then on Pompey? Yes, the first episode was good indication of where the series was going to go. I mean, in the, uh, like you were saying earlier, the uh, writing of Talbot Rothwell, who of course wrote the Carry On movies, but of course the series was directed by David Croft. Now, Croft, who went on to do so many other sitcoms like Hello, Hello, Heidi High, and at that time he was also doing Dad's Army. So the series had one of the top directors in sitcom at that time, but also they had the ability to draw in other actors as well, and people who had played comedy like Jeffrey Hughes, Michael Holden, 
and Hugh Paddock. Now, it is a very similar sort of thing that Howard would get on the Carry On films with the same sort of actors coming back and again. And also, really, that they had a sort of team feel, like Horden being there, Hughes. It was a team sort of effort throughout the whole of the series. But the first episode, in detailing the way that the series is going to go, it just provides the opportunity for Howard to do his stand-up act. Now, you add in the uh, double entendres and the risque gag, but it is his actual prologue which makes for the episode because everyone knows where the program's going. They feel safe in that. Yeah, and on the point about the, the body, dialogue and so on, a couple of points about that. First of all, up Pompeii originally, don't necessarily think it would be the case if it was repeated today, but Up Pompeii originally was post-Watershed. It was going out at 9 o'clock. That particular episode that we saw this evening went out at 9 o'clock on March the 30th, 1970. Frankie Howard later said in an interview for Arena on BBC around about 1990 that for every nine letters of praise that he got for Up Pompeii, there would be a tenth letter complaining about what some people saw as the low humour that they thought that this was going too far, that this was something which was beneath him, that it's something they didn't really need to do. As I understand it, Frankie Howard took the time to reply to all the letters that he got and would say to those people, I'm sorry that you, you didn't like this show, it's very difficult pleasing all the people all the time. But it's certainly true to say that from that point onwards, he'd also just done the two carry-on films about a year earlier. From that point onwards, then, he did always have that sort of reputation. Quite often you hear his names sort of thrown in there with people like Benny Hill as proponents of uh, body uh, humour. But of course, he his career went all the way back to Variety Bandbox in late 1940s, early 50s. Uh, and he wasn't necessarily known for having particularly blue material. The other thing as well about the style of the show, David Croft, in an interview around about 2002, had said that Frankie Howard originally didn't much care for the appearance of the, the scantily clad females uh, in the background. Um, it wasn't something that he was particularly keen on for the show. Later on, he did, sort of realised or decided that this was going to be something that would be advantageous to himself because at the time he was closet gay man who actually quite liked the idea of being sort of photographed with the women in the same sort of style as Benny Hill and so on and he found that that was something that would be useful to him in his own situation but it's certainly the case that it's, I don't know if it actually pushes the boundaries to the actual absolute limit but it's certainly uh, a good deal sort of runs you uh, than anything that would have gone before. It would appear there's an ongoing gag which you've got Frankie Howard playing Lurkio his master's son played by Harry Gardner, uh, nauseous. It seems to be there's an on-running, ongoing gag about his various poems, dare I say, limericks. But in the second episode, it's pretty much heavily implied that he is literally about to say fuck. So it's a weird one, because he'll then make a point, oh, that doesn't rhyme, but the word that replaces what you expect it to, it does begin with an F, if I remember rightly, as well as the fact that in the first episode and the second episode, and I assume so forth as well, that you've got Frank Howard looking at the camera and, oh, 
wait for it. You know what's coming. But then the gag, of course, is it never is. But the fact that it's even then it's sowing the seed in your head that, oh, it is going to be what you think it's going to be, but never is. Yes. I, I don't know if they would dare have um, done one one week where the the end of the second line seems absolutely innocuous and then the end of the first line is, is something uh, appallingly uh, X-rated. I don't know if they ever uh, did anything like that. Uh, I think it was sort of episode six where it was something about shunt. I wasn't... Oh, I see. Yeah, Frankie Howard has this sort of the Dick Emery about him looking towards the audience, looking towards the camera when he is telling a, a joke which he knows is corny or a line which is uh, sort of particularly rude or whatever it may be. I think there's also quite a nice moment in the, the film where Patrick Cargill is playing on his, his harp and, and singing There's No Place Like Rome and he doesn't actually look down the lens but he sort of gives a look as if to say, yeah, I know. The show in, in itself, I think that it's quite reveling in its sort of embracing permissive society. 1970, also takes advantage of the fact colour television is relatively new, has a lot of very nice sets and costumes and so on. But uh, it does seem to be, not a critique or a parody, but it seems to be taking advantage of the fact that attitudes are changing. And it's not really conceivable that this show would have been made ten years earlier, for example. It would have been a very much tamer affair if it had been. It sort of depends whether the process and idea for Up Pompeii because um, around 1969, Hugh Carlton Green would have left the uh, BBC as Director General. Now, whether they were planning it under his watch, and eventually the idea had gone so far that eventually his successor had to take it on, because it was so far down the line. Now, say if there was another director general who would have um, had the idea to say right okay we are going to do this thing it's a bit sort of saucy cheeky etc now you'd think that another director general might have said well too much and all like that but you can see coming out of that late 60s permissive society coming into 1970 and with a sea change may be happening that it was the sort of last knocking of that permissive society. But it being one of the first colour sitcoms as well, but it gave gravitas to Howard that they trusted him enough to say, OK, we are going to trust you to make this series. It's one of our uh, first landmarks sitcoms in colour, that they actually did that and went back to others which were established after that. Yeah, you just reminded me there uh, when you were saying about it's getting to the last knockings of permissive society. Within a couple of years of this, you had What If I Happened to Like a Lad, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point in the future. And there was a line in there when Teddy says Teddy's been away in the army for five years. He said, permissive society. I missed it all. There's just something that I read about in the overseas edition of the Daily Mail. By the time I get back here, 1972, it's all Malcolm Muggeridge and the Jesus Revolution. But... In terms of the dialogue and the, the risky element to it, Ocho we'd spoken about a couple of weeks back on the very first show, the kind of 
dialogue that you'd have in something like Steptoe and Son, how strong it could be on occasion. Around about this time, you've also got, for example, say the two Ronnies on BBC, uh, a lot of some of the bits and pieces quite heavy innuendo, uh, laden with suggestive humour and so on. This certainly was a feature of comedy at this particular yeah, but time. I would, I would say at that point that um, when you look at, say, the early 70s, it was still saucy and all like that, but compare it to, say, as we move into the late 70s into the 80s with someone like Benny Hill, in the late 70s he changed producers to Dennis Kirkland, who made his programme more saucier. So by the end of the decade, it went up a notch still. Have you seen the documentary series Wash is Whiter? about television commercials. Yes, yes. There's a great line in one of those uh, talking about a version of sexual liberation where it said sexual liberation to some just meant more girls to go around. Mm. And you can certainly see that in the movie of of Pompeii, I think. Yeah. But with the sort of movie as well, it would be taken a nap up again from the TV series. Yeah, I I don't really like the effect that it has on... I think that that's something that afflicts quite a few of the sitcom movies of the 70s. Because we can show more, because we can say more, we can do that in lieu of a joke. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or Swanny Whistle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a point that sitcom films, say, comparing the series about Pompeii with the sitcom film, it does suffer from that. And when you look at the other films which were around at that, time as well, comedy films which may be sitcom films or not sitcom films, by those standards of set that you would have for carry-on films or later moving into the adventures of films and uh, more commonly the confessions of films. So it was pushing the envelope. How far can we go and really, as time goes on, it does, like you said, in lieu of a joke, pushing. It's the, and then you just basically get that horrible clash between liberation and repression, and they just start to make each other look kind of bleak. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really know where it wants to go. It eventually gets to the point where there is no further that you can go with it as it is. So you've got, for example, as you say, Ocho, you've got, say, the TV series of Up Pompeii can go so far. The film series can go a little bit further. Around about the same time, the the carry-ons are are getting a bit more body and so on. Then you've got things like confession films. Where else do you go after that if you then end up with something like George Harrison Marx and so on? You're only then a couple of years removed from something like the comedy store coming along alternative comedy, changing the rules, turning on its head. Suddenly things like innuendo have gone out the window because you can only how, how much further can you go with that before suggestion actually just becomes display. Can I just put my glasses on a lanyard here and be a real intellectualising ponce? And uh, say that in some ways, it's they're allowed to deal with sex, but they're not allowed to deal with sexuality. Yeah. Particularly female sexuality. I think erotica in the movie seems to be just easy in a way she's not in the... the well, she's not in the pilot. Because the, the first episode of series one has to kind of retcon the pilot 
because the pilot is all erotic as you know she's had everybody and then in the it's like all oh, right she's got to be a virgin for the episode so we just say that yeah that was just boasting okay yeah we've spoken before about uh the situation fitting the character role the other way around and uh yeah that does seem to be a good example of that of course, in terms of the narrative as well, um, the fact that you've got Willie Rushton appearing as Plautus. Now, I didn't, or Plautus, Pla- Pla- well, it's not Plautus, but it's Plautus. I, I think they Plautus. pronounce it Plautus in that. My inclination is to pronounce it Plautus. I know just enough of Latin pronunciation to damage myself, not enough to be useful. Before I figured out exactly what his role was, I thought he was meant to be playing a god. And then, of course, as it turns out, in a way he is, because he the works of the original Plautus, uh, which was um, was an influence directly on the series, and um, having sort of a bit of a look through uh, his surviving works, uh, there is quite a lot of farce in it. I was trying to eagerly hunt down one that directly references Vestal Virgins, but um, uh, not too surprisingly, there isn't. But, but the the play Pseudolus does have the whole thing about brothels and. Which of course is is integral to. Uh... But you can take a lot of Pseudolus out of. A funny thing happened on the way to a forum. It's basically that character transferred from the stage onto TV. Hud's just changed it a little bit, and it's pretty much already there. Yeah, I can only presume that everybody involved saw Howard playing Sudless in 1963. Of course, wasn't there a... That was it. There was supposed to be an Up Pompeii stage play that somebody was working on, and Howard then dropped it to go and play Sudless. In a revival in 1986, a funny thing happened. Yeah, it was uh, Howard was asked one of the writers which he worked with to do an updated version about Pompeii for a tour around the UK, but he retook up the role as Tudelus again, and it lay dormant uh, basically till 2011, when it did go around the UK basically starring uh, well, uh, someone who you could say was a sort of knockoff of Howard, if you get what I mean. Damien Williams. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just to go back to the point about the origins of the series, I believe it was the case that a BBC executive had been on holiday in Pompeii and having just seen Frankie Howard on the stage remarked that he half expected to see Frankie Howard pop out from behind one of the columns. That was where the idea of, of then creating the series from... Well, I think, it would, I think it would be someone like... It would have been an executive anyway. And, of course, they would have taken it to uh, Bill Cotton uh, being at that time deputy head of light entertainment. It would have been uh, someone like Michael Mills who, who would have most probably came up with the idea... But, of course, Cotton would have green-lighted it under the head of light entertainment, Tom Sloan. It's a bit of a cliché. It comes up every time Frankie Howard's career is discussed. But it is true that that appearance at the establishment can't be overstated. It really did put his career back on the rails. Really, absolutely. It also changed his style. Where you were saying earlier, Mancat, there was no source in his material, not saying blue material, but it was pretty much sort of variety comedian material. Of course, a lot of his early stuff being written by Eric Sykes, I think is possibly, you know, source doesn't seem to me very Sykes. He's more whimsical. Yeah, but it's a case of peering at the establishment, 
free reign, he could do what he liked, and he could basically go for it and say, oh, well, I won't swear, but I can do it as close. I'm curious about this thing of um, Howard's... Ah, yes, no, style. How much of that... I, I know I've heard an explanation where it's basically because he didn't have enough material in his act, but also how much of that came from Sykes, because I saw Eric Sykes in a public appearance a few years ago, and he sat down, and he didn't even wait to be asked a question before he started answering a question. And he immediately, he sits down and goes, ah, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And it was Frankie Howard's shtick. I wonder how much of that came from him, or how much of it he absorbed back from his own material. I think quite a lot of it did, Ocho, um, that Howard basically followed the script. You might think all the, uh, all and ah would be ad-libbed, but they were actually in the script. So you get, say, ooh, ah, missus, in the actual script, and he would follow it word for word, rather than being it. But he learnt it so often that it seemed natural, but it would be like a natural ad lib. Frankie was an unusual case, I suppose you could say, because he's somebody who... It's not a criticism, it's just a statement of fact. There are certain performers who just don't ad-lib. Um, that's just that's not something that they, they do. I heard a story once about Sid James approaching Jack Douglas when Jack Douglas was added to the carry-on team. And he said to Jack Douglas, look, I've noticed that you've got this habit of, of adding these little bits and pieces in. Please don't do that uh, with myself. Because Sid James just didn't ad-lib. Frankie Howard was of the same ilk. And even though his material made it sound as if he was constantly ad-libbing... And, I mean, there's no way that he could always, always have followed the scripts to the letter. There are examples of clips of his shows where he's reacting to a particular person's laugh in the audience. Unless There's a great one where somebody in the audience coughs. And he's, oh, that's a nasty cough you got there. Yes. And then <laughs> So unless we're going to assume that he had a plant in the audience for that line, then we we know that he wasn't completely bereft of, this is going to sound horrible, but he wasn't Chevy Chase. No, but mostly the plant, whoever would be in the audience, was more likely to be his manager, Dennis Hamer. Dennis Hamer was in the audience to bounce off there, say for an ad level or something like that, but he's done it for so long... Um, for instance, by the time Frankie Howard was doing Frankie Howard on campus in about 1991, but he'd done those ad-libs so many times that... He, yeah, I know, I know which one you're thinking yeah, of as well. He knew, yeah, yeah. He knew that he could do it almost naturally to say, right, okay, I can answer things, I can do it naturally. So he seems more relaxed that he's been training himself. There are a couple of examples of when Frankie Howard found himself outside of his comfort zone. One, which I believe doesn't survive on videotape, was he was invited to be part of the panel of What's My Line? And of course, there was no scope at all for any kind of preparation. The whole point of the show is being quick-witted and interacting uh, with the guests and so on. And Frankie Howard, from the way it's been described since, just dried. He barely spoke a word in the programme at all. Years and years and years later on, it was one of the early comic relief shows, Frankie Howard appeared doing a little skit alongside Michael Burke, uh, just sort of soliciting for, for donations and phone calls and so on. And it had gone down very well, and he was convinced to return later on in the evening. And this time he was sitting opposite Simon Mayo. The problem was that 
he had prepared for that first appearance and so all these bits and pieces he had planned for second time that he came on he didn't have anything ready so he again he was just dry he, he just didn't have any any lines to use i suspect that it's the case that like a lot of performers we've seen this with people in different circumstances and so on when they are surrounded with people they work with often if they are under a particular director or producer that they trust very much they can find bits of business they can find ways to get out of things particularly of course in in frankie was of course he was he was performing at a time when a lot of the material that he would have been doing on the radio and so on would have been live and so things do go wrong and you've got to be able to to cover for that but at the same time if you if you find yourself entirely out of your comfort zone if you find yourself in something say for example like what's my line this is not his wall this is not what he does it is interesting though that i do think that when uh bruce forsyth did leave the generation game now frankie howard did put it forward that he would like to give the generation game a go because he thought oh well i could do the similar thing as uh bruce forsyth almost like a continuation because he had appeared on um, editions of the generating game playing games and all like that with the uh, contestant that he could do it and it could be scripted in such a way that he could do a similar sort of thing to do it on script but of course like you said it is a sort of unknown sort of element which would have been the problem yeah apparently he had his heart set on on the show and was very keen to do it and i can imagine bbc executives thinking that was a world away from what they'd had with brucey because brucey of course that's his arena he's, he's he's always in charge and he's he's always on the top of his game but of course alan boyd then replaced bruce Forsyth with larry grayson and the dynamic changed isla sinclair was the person who was actually sort of running the show in terms of keeping everything ticking over and so you can definitely imagine frankie howard in that role it really depends if by howard putting himself in that sort of position that it may have put alan boyd towards uh larry grayson to say oh we can't have um frankie do it what about yeah. larry instead? um are we right in thinking, chaps, that a Pompeii, possibly second only to Doctor in the House, has the most spin-offs of any sitcom that we may well discuss in this series of podcasts? Please chip in with any other ones that you can think of, but just off the top of my head I'm thinking, okay, we've got a Pompeii, we've got Whoops Baghdad. Not Whoops Apocalypse. Uh, no, 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 not related. Then Churchill uh, said to me. Churchill said, of course, which wasn't broadcast at the time, owing to the outbreak of the Falklands War, and got its premiere on UK Gold when it started in November 1992. We had the films at Pompeii, we had Up the Chastity Belt, we had Up the Front, we had a sequel, not a sequel, a revival of Up Pompeii, Follow Up Pompeii in 1975, and then again in 1991. Are there any other ones that I'm missing out? But there was also a sort of abandoned project uh, film called Up the Out. Frankie Howard was going to be in, you know, in the outs in sort of ski resorts, same sort of thing going on, which was uh, bits and pieces were sort of filmed about 1985, but the project really didn't take off. Yeah, I was just chatting before you about that earlier on. TCT? Would uh, a touch of the Casanovas be included or not? Um, I suppose you could argue that. 
it was co-written by um, Sig Collin, who was involved with Up Pompeii. So. Yes, indeed, co-writer of the second series of Up Pompeii. Yes, I suppose you could argue that. Ocho, I think I mentioned to yourself off earlier on as well, the Australian series Up the Convicts, bits and pieces of which I've ah. seen in circulation online. Blimey. Why was Up the Alps abandoned? Because it sounds terrible. <laughs> or it sounds like the kind of thing that, that gets post-mortemed in, oh God, that was never going to work, was it? Well, I think it. I think it was just the case that Howard Tart wasn't really in it. You know, he'd done it so many times and all like that. And of course, by that time, the material had moved on. Like you said, alternative comedians—they were the sort of currency. Yes, there were light entertaining comedians and all like that. But around that time, you know, Howard's career sort of went into a lull. DCT, what were your thoughts on any sequels that you've seen? Are you familiar with things like Up the Chastity Belt, Up the Front, any of those bits and pieces, Frankie Howard and the Carry On films and so on? It's funny that you mention Up the Convicts because someone only 16 hours ago on YouTube, as we are recording, someone uploaded a good 10 minutes worth of Up the Convicts to YouTube (laughs) with the time code and everything. So that's bizarre. But, well, it's weird for me because with Frankie Howard, I have a predominant memory of continuity regarding his uh, children's television show All Change. It was All Change, wasn't it? It was, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I also have vague memories of seeing him performing. I, I assume it was the ones where it was on, on campus, is that right? Yeah, yes, it was Frankie yes, Howard on campus, was. which was his show at the Oxford Union, and then later on he did a series called Frankie's On, where he was in front of different audiences. I think there was like an audience of firefighters and so on. Ah, yes, I think I saw the Oxford Union one, so I had kind of a vague memory of him then. In, in terms of the chronology here, we're kind of in a strange phase, because um, coming up in the next few weeks, we're sort of venturing further into a territory I'm arguably more familiar with than these last few. But yes, it, it certainly has left me interested. It's one of those things which um, I've certainly intend to investigate further. I mean, it, Blackadder is always perceived as this thing where, oh, well, you take these characters and you put them through time and they get into all sorts of scrapes, you know, on a base level. But there you have it over 10 years previously. Hopefully I'm not um, attributing the incorrect quote himself. I think it was John Lloyd who said about Blackadder that he didn't want it to be type of humour that Mel Brooks had used in History of the World Part 1. In other words, he didn't want anybody saying uh, let's phone so-and-so or we can't, the telephone hasn't been invented yet. And so Blackadder does avoid that mm-hmm. kind of humour. I think that our Pompeii, generally speaking, is closer to Blackadder. It, doesn't, it, it sometimes will have the odd sort of nod and a wink to contemporary culture, but it doesn't really take the easy route uh, too often. It's really bad. Up Pompeii does, you know, occasionally break the fourth wall and all like that to have the contemporary reference. But you can really sort of superimpose it again and again and again. It's a tried and tested sort of format, you know, which you would see in Up the Chastity Belt in Whoops, Baghdad, and in even Churchill said to me that you can put it each time to say, right, Here's Frankie Howard. It's almost like a relative of Lurkio's. Even that, uh, that they share the same name in each of the programmes and the films as well. It is a sort of 
try and unlock his name. Yeah, the, there is a little bit of the extended family tree element. You can always uh, introduce it to another period of time in the same way as, for example, Blackadder. Osho, what were your thoughts on how Pompey uses the surroundings? The fact that it's set where it's set, how do you feel that it uses the the bits and pieces, the, the surroundings and the culture of the time? Do you think it uses it to its advantage? You mean like we have on our list of tropes, location as character? Yeah, because this is a case of general location as character. There's nothing in the sets. You know, if you put that on a different set, it would still work. If you keep changing the location, send them to a different household, it would still work. There's not kind of that thing. But it's a fairly broad version of just generic Rome. Well, Pompeii, the generic Roman Republican Empire. Even that doesn't even matter. Uh, the series is set in the Republic. The film set in the Empire. It doesn't matter. <laughs> The thing I was thinking about, uh, why Up the Alps sounded so awful, why it sounded like the kind of thing you read about in What Went Wrong articles, is how many broad stereotypes can you slot into a ski lodge? <laughs> yes. Rome's fine for that. A war is fine for that. Generically medieval times is fine for that. Ski lodges, not so much. Uh, one thing I wanted to... When you mentioned Larry Grayson, I'm talking about, is... Um, Frankie Howard's camp being different from everybody else's camp and why there are a few little gay jokes in a TV show, but Lurkio's definitely supposed to be straight because there's something aggressive about Frankie Howard's camp. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure anybody would have been comfortable if Lurkio had been portrayed as being an aggressive gay guy. Well, we will come to, because it's number one on the sitcom list, uh, or at least it is on, on my version of it, Odd Man Out, uh, in a future episode. John Inman's not aggressive. Well, no, you say that. Or is he? You, you say that, but uh, Odd Man Out 1977 was criticised for the main character, John Inman's main character, being too overtly gay. Even though he never actually says that, it, it's all still implication, That's it's weird. still suggestion. He has a friend who takes over the chip shop in Blackpool, a friend called Bobby, who he regularly converses with. And the dialogue as it's written leaves less to the imagination than you'd get in, say, an episode of Are You Being Served? And I think that John Inman actually, he was very careful how he said it. He said that in a way he felt as if he was being forced to do things that he wasn't entirely comfortable with. And by that he meant the portrayal of the character and the fact that he was a little, a little bit less inhibited than Mr. Humphreys. And so, yeah, you could say that, um, yeah, Frankie Howard's style of camp is a world away from, say, for example, somebody like Julian Clary. Yes, yeah, yeah even then, even though Julian Clary is, <laughs> is into single entendres, there is actually a lack of aggression. That Howard does have this forceful personality that I think... In the 70s, people were okay seeing an old gropper of girls in a way there would have been an old gropper of boys. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because around about the same time as, as Pompey was arriving, subtle changes were being made to Sid James' persona in as much as in the Carrigan films, he was starting to be cast in roles, sort of avuncular roles. Say, Carrigan at your convenience, for example, he's the, the union rep in Bless His House, He's the father of the household, rather than the character has been sort of chasing Barbara Windsor uh, in previous years. And yeah, you could say that there are sort of unspoken rules. There, are, there are certain 
things which it's okay to portray in certain lights. So, for example, they can make the odd comment in the film. For example, you've seen the film, there's a section where he gets the wrong idea about Lance Percival's character. Under those circumstances, it seems that it's accepted he can suggest something about a particular character. In a different set of circumstances, if somebody is being the sort of baby face or being the heel or wherever it may be, it suddenly becomes taboo. But it is a case with um, Sid James that, like you said, his sort of uh, demeanour, trying to carry on films, change with that. It was Sid's own sort of decision. It was basically an acceptance to say, I'm getting old. And people don't want to see an older man chasing goats. He knew. He knew that he was getting older and he couldn't go on like that forever. So he had to appear to be a patriarchal figure, like a father figure, and those types of roles um, as the decade went on. You know what, um, Mooncat, you're more of an expert on the carry-ons than I. Well, most people are. I was just thinking Kenneth Williams as well in the carry-ons is always sort of kind of portrayed as being straight, whereas um, on, on sort of all the puff jokes aimed at Charles Hawtrey. Um, yes, who's much weedier and yeah, I've, watery. Yeah, yeah, you could you could say that, or sometimes it will. Does he ever fall. call? Does he ever call him a puff? No, I was just being kind of no. blunt by by sort of saying that's you know that's what they were. They all weren't right. gay jokes. They weren't I'm... jokes. In and of and informed by sexuality, they were puff jokes. They were just yeah. ha ha ha. You're a yeah. uh, well, yeah. I just I just didn't remember Sid James going yeah, yo puff. <laughs> um, he said, well, they certainly would have uh, used rhyming slang for it. One piece I did notice the other day we we were discussing after the last sitcom club on the radio we were discussing edits made to shows nowadays particularly on channels like gold and itv3 and so on one thing that i did notice the other week was that some types of homosexual slang used by albert steptoe were cut and other ones were left in and yeah you would get a lot of basically things like rhyming slang like iron and things like that would be sort of thrown in it would never be quite as overt as that but yeah in the case of kenneth williams i think that um his character quite often he'd be portrayed as someone who was asexual or perhaps someone who was uh, afraid of female uh, romantic involvement uh, particularly if he's trying to sort of fend off hattie jakes uh in, in like some of the doctor films and so on but yeah usually if, if it's going to be an out and out sort of gay joke it might well be like a, a person who's brought in as a guest it wouldn't necessarily be like a main player in the film itself it wouldn't be a, a principal character i'm racking my brains trying to think of any particular examples of, of principal characters who it's implied are gay without it actually being stated out front the first example we can we can we can come to this in a, in a, in a future episode. The first example I can think of of an out and out gay character is actually in Agony with Maureen Lipman, uh, which is a gay mm. couple. But I'm struggling to think of any examples off the top of my head of any of um, any of the films or the TV shows of this ilk of this particular type that would have had somebody who was actually a confirmed homosexual. I'm sure that some people will be shouting at their iPods right now saying, that show, that one, that one. But uh, yeah, nothing's coming to mind. Lukewarm in yeah. Porridge. Because um, yeah. I've been re-watching Porridge and my wife's been watching it for the first time. And uh, I suppose I better clarify for people listening to the podcast, I'm living in California, my wife's American. 
So all of this is new to her. She doesn't really have quite the same frame of reference for watching these things. Uh, but I was saying it was interesting that you get gay jokes about lukewarm, you get race jokes about McLaren. But these tend to be, I think, edited less and were certainly being sh- you know, repeated on BBC One long after other shows were a bit more taboo because those, well, they're named characters for a start. I can, I can tell you their names. They get dialogue that's not about their primary uh, gag characteristic and they all have right of reply. After you get a black joke aimed at McLaren, the conversation will then continue. He doesn't go off having done his job. Yeah. I'm actually just I'm just thinking of um, an example counter to that, which would be Hilda Baker's Not On Your Nelly, which has a gay couple in it, and their sole purpose appears to be the, the gay gags. And you also have, for example, uh, there's an Asian character there who appears to be the recipient of the the race gags um, and that's that's all they seem to be there for that that seems to be their uh, entire purpose so i was just thinking that perversely you could edit those jokes out of porridge without doing any damage to the scene and that's one reason they can be left in yeah i see what you mean i um, mean we are getting this rather scary compliance culture from bbc stuff i don't know if you heard about the recent thing of not the nine o'clock news having a reference to jimmy savile edited out and it's only a reference to him wearing loud clothing well, that's, that is, you know, sort of thing, like you say, with the compliance. Any reference to Savile or anyone, anyone involved in current events. I think the thing that gets worrying is the recent Fist of Fun DVD situation where the DVD is being edited. I might be making myself enemies here. I'm kind of okay. I can understand things being edited out of broadcasts. Because that's just being pumped into people's homes. The invitation into the home is a bit more tacit in broadcasting. With a DVD, you've gone out, you've bought it, you know what's there. Or if you don't know what's there, caveat emptor or something. But it's beginning to be bothersome. It's like, well, if this is going over to into the DVD domain, what's next? Yeah. I think there's an argument for saying that there are slightly different rules with regards, or at least in my own opinion, there should be different rules with regards to, say, a channel like Gold or a channel like ITV3, which clearly sets out its stall and saying, this is the type of channel that this is, these are the kind of programs that we have, and so on. And there is then sort of an expectation amongst the audience as to what's coming. Whereas if you suddenly put uh, an episode of, say, Porridge on BBC2 at half past six of an evening, then, yeah, your potential audience is much wider uh, much broader in scope, and yeah, there was an argument then for saying that the odd little bit of uh, judicious editing is, is not necessarily um, going to be But then there's thing. that whole thing of, are people going to keep track of, of the edits and which copy is going to get pulled off the shelf for which purpose? People can't do that all the time, you know. If you pull things off the shelf, you just need people to be watching thousands and thousands of hours of TV, just even for slight reference or anything like that, it is impossible. Not trying to be controversial, but it may be people's own sensibilities to these types of things. And another point to bring up, though, I mean, often people talk about this as a case of, oh, they're just worried about angry letters and outrage. And There is something else. My experience, all my in-laws being Mexican-American... Because I remember reading somebody somewhere say, oh, they won't show Speedy Gonzalez because, oh, they think it's racist. Like, yeah, the problem there is not necessarily angry letters. The problem there is the second largest ethnic group in the US 
changing channels. It is not the job of Cartoon Network to send millions of people over to Nickelodeon. They might not change back. Yeah. yeah. That's why as I remember somebody saying, oh, you know, they'll show uh, Comedy Central or somebody. I don't know. It's been a while uh, since I've been in the UK, so I haven't kept up with these things. It's Comedy Central, not Paramount Comedy Channel now, yeah? That's right, yeah. Do they still show 70s shows on it? Yes, occasionally they do. But people they, they... say, well, they'll show Bless This House and they'll show Man About the House, but they won't show Love Thy Neighbour. Why is that? It's it's just political correctness. Comment. No, part of that is that that demographic that will respond well to Bless This House and Man About the House, they're showing those so that they can sell commercials in the meantime for car insurance. And a good chunk of that demographic doesn't want to watch Love Thy Neighbour. Because this is partially what happens when you get a rising middle class within ethnic minorities, if I can be. Because I was just about to say, we're a bunch of white guys. What are we talking about? (laughs) I think, yeah, I think you are right that, and I don't mind being accused of being uh, an out-and-out capitalist when I say this, because it's just a statement of fact. Commercial channels are run, the clue is in the, the title, a commercial basis. So bottom line, when it comes to channels making edits i know it's a different situation for the bbc but the bottom line for channels like for example itv free making edits in films and programs and so on uh, is exactly as you say that they are trying to bring in uh the largest possible audience in an increasingly fragmented media market um, yeah there's a difference between suppressing things being overcautious and just saying hey wait a minute why have we got this big drop in ratings at six o'clock and why don't they come back oh hang on a minute that's yeah, and that's what we show time, them next door. And at the same time, I agree with you that when it comes to things like DVDs, and I would also argue that this should extend to digital downloads, as they're becoming more and more commonplace and are rapidly becoming the norm. If I purchase the complete Up Pompeii season one, season two, and so on, I would be furious if there had been edits made for anything other than the ubiquitous musical clearance problems. I understand about that kind of thing. I know that kind of thing is is an issue and that can sometimes be the the difference. Again, come down to the bottom line, can be the difference between a commercial release being viable for the company or not. But when it comes to dialogue and so on, I don't have any expectations that there's going to be edits in something like that because that's something I've purchased as a straightforward transaction. I'm buying the show. If I'm buying on the buses, then I don't want to see then uh, every instance of Stan and so on being mean to Olive cut out on the basis that it might cause offence. It might improve the programme but <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you watched the film version, Ocho, uh, in preparation yes. for this. Um, well, what actually I wasn't planning on doing. My plan of research was to watch A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. The new ITV sitcom Plebs which I didn't get very far with. Uh, so I watched uh, Funny Thing Happened and I had a bit of spare time, so I thought, well, hang on a minute, let's watch the film version of what was essentially a TV version of a film. That might be fun. And of course, I'm watching this, hang on a minute, Michael Horden's in this. Yes, that <laughs> Playing was, that the was, same role. Yeah, that was one thing that actually jumped out, was that the casting in the film version, for me, was a lot stronger than in the TV series itself. You had Michael Horden, you had Madeline Smith, you had Rita Webb as a soothsayer. The characters in the, in the film version, of course, you had Patrick Cargill as well. Characters Which, of course, in bit... some ways, Patrick Cargill is a world leader invited to what could be an embarrassing dinner party. Why, that's the pilot of Heil Honey, I'm Home. <laughs> I thought you were going to start drawing allusions with some episode of Fowler Dear Fowler that I wasn't familiar with. <laughs> 
But no, I, I did prefer the cast in the film version. As I suppose you'd expect, it's going to be a bigger budget, it's a higher profile event. Probably my favourite sequence of the entire film is the sequence in the sauna because I do remember those particular lines steam, more steam, I remember all those from the first time I saw the film 20 years ago, it's probably the scene that sticks in my mind most and By the way, do you know where Bill Fraser was born? Um, Bill Fraser, is he from around these parts? When I say these parts yes, I'm, I'm in Scotland. I know somebody's going to want to hear you say his birthplace Oh, he's not from Perth, is he? He's from Perth, yes <laughs> As soon as you said that, there you go. Okay, that's that's one pair for the podcast. Every podcast should contain a pair just for Birdie. But uh, oh, yeah, d- sorry. sorry can, I, just, I just wanted we we like to tie things together as much as possible. Of course, in the cast of uh, a funny thing happened, which of course being a Richard Lester film makes it essentially a British film because of you know who he. Uh, my wife was saying, "Do you think what? Do you think the English actors were cheaper?" I said, "I think it's a case of Richard Lester, you know, uses people he likes." <laughs> for like first few minutes, John Bennett. John Bennett is in this, <laughs> but in there as uh, Miles Gloriosus is Leon Green, who was in an episode of Teabag as Nestius, as well as being in a couple of Carry Ons and a couple of Adventures of films. Right. I mean, I know, I, I know that it's not a sitcom, but I'd still love to review Teabag one day because <laughs> it's one of my favourite. Uh, well, you can set up your own the Teabag Club. You can have a separate. Yeah, but yeah. Tea Club. Yes, um, Teabag Kids Club. Well, it could just be Kids Club, and then we can. Somebody had requested my parents are aliens, so we can we can uh, do that show in there. But DCT, we need a kid for that, though, don't we? Well, I suppose I'm just I think... thinking it'd be kind of weird. Oh, I don't know, though. We just you just got a bunch of straight white guys talking about race and sex politics. But I'm just thinking that for a kids club, we could do with at least one kid watching it to get some opinion. Yeah, I mean, our, our kids, our kids these days going to. I was going to say, are they going to relate to to, to rent a ghost? Well, I mean, it, it's all nonsense. Well, the way they so don't why, relate why to it they? should be interesting. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, it, it does amuse me when I see um, people on Twitter who are archive TV fans who are then sort of slowly trying to introduce their kids to archive TV and so on. And and usually it, it seems to be that quite often it'll get a, a positive reaction from the younger viewers. Just to go back to uh, the start of our show, we've talked about the fact that Frankie Howard managed to reinvent himself so often. And there he was in front of the Oxford Union, effectively doing the same material that he'd be doing 40 years earlier with small adjustments, but still getting over for a younger audience. And of course, as you mentioned, DCT, uh, the children's show, all change as well. Does anybody recall a cartoon series called The Blunders? Uh, vaguely. And that was narrated by Frankie Howard. And I don't think he actually appeared in it as such. But that was kicking about around about the time of all change. DCT, are you inclined, having watched uh, the episodes that you've watched, are you inclined to continue with Up Pompeii? Are you intrigued to see more or the spin-offs or whatever it may be? Uh, yes. I mean, I was quite fond of Frankie Howard just in terms of he's a likeable character. He's, a, he's, a, he's an enjoyable, likeable character. I was always very fond of breaking the fourth wall in, in comedy when it's done well. When you haven't got uh, a live audience or indeed a laughter track and you've got an aside to the audience and it's a comedy, it can end up coming off more Urquhart than anything else. But yeah, I would. I don't know if this is uh, relevant now, but when we were talking about um, early gay sitcom characters, um, who can forget Billy Crystal in Soap? Of course, yes, indeed. Good choice. I think there's actually, I think there's scope there for an entire podcast discussion all by itself. But DCT, how do you find that Pompey compares with other, what you might call, personality-led sitcoms? Sitcoms which are principally uh, a sort of a vehicle uh, for the, the, the main star themselves. I think it'd be fair to say that uh, Hancock was certainly that. 
in many respects. Would would that be fair to say? I would assume. Yeah, I think so. In in, in yeah. its own way, of course, he doesn't break the fourth wall, but he does. In I think it's there's an airfield at the bottom of our garden. There is a moment when he gets a really big reaction from the audience, and he turns to them, and goes, "Do you mind, please, let the artist work?" <laughs> well, it's very uh, Howard esque. Yeah, and there there are moments in the TV series where he he kind of shares a moment with the camera. He never doesn't necessarily uh, say you lot or anything, but he he does look at the camera as if it's sort of, Are "You with me on this? This is this is absurd." Does he do an Oliver Hardy? Very slightly, but kind of. He sort because of looks... Oliver Hardy had that in his. I got this. The whole thing about Oliver Hardy being more of a cinema comedian than anybody else at the time. He did have stage experience, but stage experience as a singer. And he was a cinema owner. And the story is is that he saw some of this stuff and thought, well, I could probably do as well as any of those guys. Ended up, I think his first stop was the Lubin Manufacturing Company in Florida. And basically, I think he becomes a comedian in front of the camera. So he has his his technique is developed as a comedian is developed in front of the camera, and it's interesting that long before he's working with Stan Laurel, he is doing the look to camera. Yeah, I think it's inviting. I, I like the idea of sharing the story with the audience. I think that's certainly something I'm, I've written down as a of our ever increasing list: breaking the fourth wall, sharing the world directly with the audience. I mean, really, uh, with breaking the fourth wall, you know. We've seen it go out of fashion, and it's come right into fashion now, obviously with Miranda Hart and the way that she dresses the camera and the audience. She would be the main component of uh, doing that sort of thing now. It's entirely appropriate for Up Pompeii to make use of it, because, of course, um, that was a that was a big thing in uh, in ancient plays, certainly, um, sort of chorus, monologues, talking directly to the audience, asides as well. But it's entirely appropriate that that is featured in something that is that is referencing that original era of, of when that happened in storytelling. I mean, in regards to other kind of real-life character-led sitcoms, I'm trying to kind of think of other, other examples of that, especially of that time. I mean, Hancock came to mind primarily because on the tin, isn't it? But I can't think of any of many others, to be honest. I, I mean, at the top of my head. I mean, they're probably flooding back to me in, eventually. I was just going to say there that I was thinking about if Frankie Howard was with us today, I think that something like the audio podcast, I think, would be a perfect medium for him in terms of uh, the fact that he always wants that link with his audience and that sort of conspiratorial type of dialogue. Um, I think that he would be absolutely natural for something like that, perhaps like playing as his, like the front man of an ensemble. In regards to other uh, asides to the camera and so forth, it did occur to me a low, a low. Because that was always Renee filling us in on the latest. Yes. So, yeah, you do have Renee doing effectively the prologue, whereas, of course, there is a device for carrying viewers over from one episode to the next. It is a similar sort of thing. You know, with David Cross doing both, it's obviously the idea that he took from up Pompeii and said, right, we'll reuse it in a lower low to have the episode recap. And he would talk to the camera in between as well, if yeah, I'm not mistaken, yeah. yeah. The one thing I noticed at the, not Pompeii, of course, you have action continuing under the end credits, which, of course, is a David Croft. Well, you, have, you didn't have You Have Been Watching, but you had that whole thing that everybody continues what they were doing at the moment the credits kicked in. In that first episode, it just seemed to be an excuse for all the <laughs> for everyone just to make out with each other, or at least pretend to. Yeah, of the acting job. 
and yet we never got Felix Bonnes and Leslie Dwyer going at it real hot and heavy like we all wanted to. Did that ever happen, Yes, My Dear, with Darth Maul? Well, I've got an episode of Yes, My Dear lined up. I, whenever we do, whenever we discuss it on the podcast, I know which episode it's going to be. I saw it last week. Am I busy that week? <laughs> I've got a funny feeling that when we do that show, it's just going to be me sat here. Um, but uh, crying. One thing I noticed in a documentary, Channel Four documentary, was a picture of Frankie Howard in his Lurkio garb, but opposite him was an ATV camera, and there was a sort of a, a sketchy sort of backdrop of Pompeii. Ocho, do you have any idea as to what this might have been from? I think this might have been discussed in some of the forums um, earlier in the year. I have absolutely no idea. No. That is interesting. I think I could shed some light on it. As we were discussing earlier, that the second side of the Frankie Howard at the Establishment album was written by Barry Took and Marty Feldman. Now, Marty Feldman was also at ATV doing his comedy machine in the early 70s. Now, it could very well be that Feldman invited on Howard to appear on his show and to do a little skit or a bit of stand-up in character as Lucio. That's possibly the case, yeah. Like I say, I think it's something that's been discussed on the forums previously, but it just it's just something I spotted earlier on this evening. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder where that fits in. It's a bit of an oddity. So, gentlemen, do we have any closing thoughts on a Pompeii? Laugh tracks. Laugh tracks. Just because that breaking the fourth wall, it's a demonstration of audience laughter and the extreme end. I think the movie's a little bit dead without the audience. But I think you could just about maybe finesse the idea across it shows the extreme purpose of audience laughter but you can have a purpose for audience laughter without breaking the fourth wall it changes the performance i know this whole thing that now uh, laugh tracks are so unfashionable no there, there is a place for that theatrical way of doing comedy i think you could say actually with miranda and mrs brown's boys that laugh tracks and, and audiences in general are suddenly back in vogue now having been uh, have been but they're, they're seen as, as kind of explicit revivals they're seen as being done so that they look like something that was fashionable once rather than these this is being done because it just improves the flavor of the thing it's part of the music like um, miranda's use of you have been watching yeah indeed um and box you had something you were going to throw in uh yes yes um as we were talking about earlier the blunders which um was voiced by Frankie Howard and co-produced by the animation company Filmfare and Central Television and broadcast in 1986. There is an episode of that uh, called The Blunder Family Tree. Now, ironically enough, the Blunders find their ancestors lived in the Roman Empire. (laughs) So it sort of ties in with up Pompeii and uh, Howard's later sort of work. Ah, mm. oh, smash now, comes full circle. TCT, anything that you want to throw in before we close? Uh, well, I'll certainly be watching um, the remaining 15 or so episodes, and um, also in regards to the pilot, Comedy Playhouse pilots, I'm very interested in the origins of those generally, because of course so many well, now classic sitcoms emerge from those in the 60s and 70s. 
So I'm definitely going to be tracking a few more of those down if I can, because um, I'd be quite interested to investigate a, a few Comedy Playhouse episodes that didn't become anything else. And by connecting the writers and so forth, seeing the, perhaps maybe a connection to any any show that didn't exactly become that, but maybe evolved into something else further down the line. So that's going to be my investigation. So that's what it's led me to do. But the other thing I was going to add in regards to adding to our list, of course, is that um, in the shows that we've done so far, I have been taking note of what one would have as a potential prop from each sitcom. So uh, if I could inquire, it's a little bit tricky with Up Pompeii, of course, because, um, well, we've all seen different parts of it, not sort of the sum of all parts, really. But any suggestion as to what prop from Up Pompeii? Um, I suppose you could have the senator's crown, I suppose you could say. You could possibly have the scrolls as a a feed, if ever there was one. Possibly even just Lurkio's attire. I suppose you could have that uh, hanging up. Was he wearing wreath? a wreath, I forget? Uh, well, he, yes, his, he was, master, he... his master would have had a, uh, a wreath. Uh, he was wearing a brown strap around his head, yes. So, okay, so in that case, I will put that on the... I'm going to add to the props list, because we'll have an increasing list of props as this goes along. Lurkio's head strap, which, uh, in context of Frankie Howard, no offence to him, but probably was keeping his uh, hairpiece on as well. Um, David Croft actually mentioned in an uh, interview, 2002, thereabouts, that... Frankie Howard always maintained uh, his hairpiece at all times, even when he was in makeup. And so when he, as he often had to do, when he had to have a piece on in some of the, the sort of later Up on Pay sequels, he basically had a piece on top of his piece, which would have been rather uncomfortable. But I think that was, that was a price he was prepared to pay for um, keeping his secret, so to speak. And something else I should certainly definitely add is that if anyone's interested in visiting Frankie Howard's house in uh, Somerset, Wavering Down House, Frankie Howard OBE Trust is a situation that's going on there, and um, you can go visit the house. I believe it's still intact. 4,000 pieces of comedy memorabilia that Frankie collected throughout his life. Worth investigating, I would say. I think that's a good day out. Yeah, I've seen um, footage of the inside of that house in a documentary which if you haven't seen it, I would definitely recommend that people track down if they want to know more about Frankie Howard, called Frankie Howard The Lost Tapes. Very, very good documentary from Channel 4 the, uh, earlier this year and that contains a lot of scenes of the inside of the house. You see a lot of memorabilia and props and so on on the walls. All the bits and pieces I'd recommend that you track down, apart from obviously all the shows that we've spoken about already, uh, Up Pompeii, it's two revivals, the Frankie Howard Variety Show from Radio 2 that's been broadcast on Radio 4 Extra recently. Also, there was free films, things like Whoops, Baghdad and so on. One thing I would certainly recommend is Graham McCann's biography of Frankie Howard, published I think around about sort of 10 years or so ago. Very comprehensive piece. And yeah, if you can track it down, certainly things like Frankie Howard at the, the Oxford Union. That's a very good example of his stage show. Also on channels like More 4, you do occasionally see the heroes of comedy from, I think it was around about 1990 or thereabouts. And finally, Reputation's documentary as well, which uh, we've referred to tonight. That was around about 2002, and that's been screened quite recently on BBC4, so it does turn up every now and then. So, DCT, I'm going to ask yourself this time, what are we talking about next week? We've already chosen a next week's subject. We have indeed. We will be talking about... The series, which essentially, I would say, arguably launched Rob Brydon into the stratosphere of comedy, especially since it's a one-man show, that is to say, Marion and Jeff, which originally featured 
in 2000 on BBC Two and went on for 17 episodes right up until 2003. And aside from a one-off special, which essentially gave us a backstory as to the series and the concept of the series, it was essentially Rob Brydon's taxi cab driver, Keith Barrett, talking to the camera for 10 minutes at a time for a variation of episodes. So we've moved from a show with occasional uh, asides to the camera breaking the fourth wall to one which uh, consists entirely of that. Grand, okay. Well, thank you very much indeed, chaps, for your time today. And we will be back very, very soon with episode five of the sitcom club, Marion and Jeff. Don't forget also that our show is produced in association with Cooked and Bombed. And if you go onto the Cooked and Bombed forum, you will see discussion of the sitcom club and also uh, ways in which you can interact with us more often. So, thank you very much indeed then, chaps. Hope you've enjoyed this show and thank you very much indeed for listening.